Welcome to another episode of A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. From Lineker last week down the middle to Finkelstein centre right, I'm ringing the changes for this midweek game to welcome writer, Times newspaper commentator and Conservative Party moderniser moderate Maven and former advisor to William Hague, George Osborne and David Cameron, the Baron of Pinner, Danny Finkelstein. Prior to his work helping to transition the Conservatives between major key, very minor key, and then David Cameron, Danny was director of the think tank The Social Market Foundation. He was also the chairman of the Policy Exchange, an independent charity seeking free market and localist solutions to public policy questions. And to give you a tidbit away from the LinkedIn theocracy, Danny is an obsessive Beatles fan. Indeed, his study desk and bookshelf are split between Holocaust tomes, reflecting in part research for a book on his family, which he's currently in the process of writing, and Paul McCartney lyric sheets. Danny was named Political Commentator of the Year at the Editorial Intelligence Comment Awards in 2010, 2011 and 2013. Last year, he published Everything in Moderation, a compilation of his Times essays over the last 20 years, which reflect, indeed, his sense for moderation, proportion and social psychology. You can find all my podcasts on all the usual platforms. Do subscribe on Apple, Spotify and others and give me a five-star review. And let me know what you think of it all on Twitter, at Daniel S.J. Ross. Today, Danny and I discuss perspective and empathy, why a sense of proportion matters, why politics matters, bourgeois stability and big ideas, Robert Cialdini's click-click-run, Covid, Brexit and self-interest, economic growth as the driver of polarisation versus congeniality, and journalism's role in policing our systems. It's my huge pleasure to share with you my conversation with Danny Finkelstein. Danny, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my great pleasure to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Not at all. Now, in the name of BS, today we'll talk about social psychology and politics, political success factors, humour, incentives, and maybe even something about kindness. Are you are you broadly happy with that so far, Daddy? That sounds good. Good stuff. So obviously, if you don't like any of my questions, feel free to tell me in true political spirit with the greatest of respect what the real question we really should be asking is. What's particularly interesting about your political career is that you have, I think, perspective and empathy. Perspective about the protagonists and issues you write about, and empathy for individuals who, lest we forget, are human and fallible. Sometimes endearingly so, recently, very tragically so, when we remember the awful killing of Sir David Amos, and often egregiously so. And you have these qualities because you actually ran for MP twice yourself. You've advised at the top table to John Major's government in the late 1990s. You then worked closely with William Hague, David Cameron, and George Osborne in opposition, championing the modernization of the Tory party before returning to journalism full-time as a commentator with the Times newspaper. So perspective and empathy, how accurate a picture am I painting of you and how does your set of experiences, your political connections inform your thinking and writing? Well, look, it's crushingly embarrassing to describe oneself as having empathy because we all struggle with that. There's a wonderful book by Nicholas Empley, Mindwise, which is all about how hard we struggle in understanding other people and even understanding ourselves and how 
much we think everyone in the world is watching us with all the important things we do when in fact they're actually wrapped up in themselves. And I can't imagine I'm any different from that. So though it's very nice of you to say I have empathy and I certainly try really hard, it often fails you. Partly because sometimes people's characters or experiences are outside your own. One of the things that really brought me up sharply was once receiving a comment on Twitter, which was quite an irritating remark. And before replying to it, going to the person's profile and discovering they were Aspergic, they actually put that and it simply hadn't occurred to me. And I realise now that quite often you have interactions with people who have either got experiences or conditions, which mean that they respond to you differently. So if I am empathetic, I always regard that as an achievement, but it's a constant challenge. And I certainly wouldn't adopt it proudly as a description of my behaviour in all circumstances. Okay, fair enough. I suppose you've at least sat on both sides of the table. As a journalist, you have real political experience. You've had some skin in the game. And I suppose that gives you colour, a richness to your writing, the way you think, the way you portray and paint stories. It really helps, but it also hinders. That's the very interesting thing. So the way in which it hinders, starting with that, you build up a network of friends, contacts, you build up your own positions, you adopt positions, which you later want to defend, you make predictions or work on the basis of predictions that then become sort of proud of and want to vindicate in your analysis. So therefore, all those things can guide you off. But it does mean you understand, you know, I remember when I was first at the Times, in one of the very early meetings, people were discussing what amounted, this is too tough a word to use, but it amounted to a sort of conspiracy theory about what politicians were up to. It was much too complicated an explanation for their behaviour. And I thought to myself, that's interesting, because nobody who'd ever been in a political room would have thought that way. Now, I think over the last 15, 20 years, because that was 20 years ago when I first joined the Times, the quality of understanding by political journalists of what's going on in politics has definitely improved. And I hope I've played a bit of a role in that. But I think it's mainly just because we know behavioural science has helped with that to some extent. And people have begun to understand a little bit more about how politicians act before they report on it. Yeah. Now, last year, you published Everything in Moderation, which is a compilation of your articles from The Times. In turn, humorous. It's in turn a little combative at times. And in some, it's a pen portrait, I think, of your politics of centrism, liberalism, and moderation. Please pick me up if that's inaccurate. But my question before you may pick me up is, do we actually need more of you to make today's politics fairer, more wide-reaching and collaborative, do you think? Everyone thinks that of themselves, don't they? So first of all, I should say on the centrism, you know, look, it comes within a certain perspective. And if you were, for example, a socialist, a worldview that I don't share, I think is entirely impractical and ill thought through. That's my view, right? But there are lots of very intelligent, very capable, also empathetic and also reasonable people who don't agree with that. And they wouldn't see me as a centrist at all, right? So I accept that to some extent I'm claiming something not everybody would agree with. I would say that what I do try to do in politics is to accept that my arguments are only one way of putting things, my interests are only one set of interests, and that proportion is incredibly important for reasons of sort of family history, apart from anything else. And I therefore do try to listen to other people and try to take account of their arguments. I don't always succeed in that endeavour, but certainly that quality, whether or not I do it well or not, that quality we could do with more of in politics, definitely. And so to what extent did your, or does your family history both inform your politics, or to what extent did it spark your love and interest for the subject? Okay, so starting with the second question, first. If you've had the experience that 
we've had in our family. So just for those people who are not aware of that, you know, I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor on my mother. My mother was a, a survivor of Belson. My father was in a Soviet collective farm deported to Siberia where my grandfather was in the Gulag. And those experiences unquestionably, you know, have a profound impact on my politics. But not only do they have an impact on the sort of politics I adopt, but also on the fact that I'm interested in it. You cannot take the view, if you've had our experience, that politics doesn't matter. Politics, they killed my grandmother and they had a good go at starving both my mother and father to death. They stole all our property and, dr- and exiled both my father and my mother's family. My grandmother was one of seven children and she's the only one that's on my father's side that survives the war. You can't have that experience and then think politics doesn't matter very much. Politics has proven completely central to our experience. So it, first of all, it does definitely influence my interest in politics and the feeling of all of my parents' children that politics matters. It has also influenced the nature of it. And some people might think in a bad way and some people in a good way. It certainly means that I am much more interested in the stability, much more suspicious of extremism. By the way, being suspicious of extremism from the right is a fairly common liberal trait. I am unusual as somebody who's liberal by instinct in being extremely concerned about left extremism. And I guess that I value bourgeois stability higher than people who haven't had our family experience. You refer to the wonders of Brent Cross Shopping Centre a few times in your book, which perhaps I, I, I associate that with bourgeois stability, and I and I empathise with that as well, living not too far away. But back to the subject of sort of collaboration, moderation in politics, it seems to me that despite that few people pay any real attention, I think, <laughs> Prime Minister's Question Time and more broadly political party debate are too rarely about collaboration and public interest, but rather about making the other side look foolish. Is that a fair representation? And if so, how do we make politics more functional and less like the school playground? Yeah, it's very hard. So when David Cameron became leader of the opposition, in the week that he was elected, I suggested in print, and I suggested in person, actually, that he reject the job of leader of the opposition in favour of leading an alternative government. That didn't mean that he should set up a government. What I meant was he should see himself as trying to tackle the serious, complex problems of government and providing people with an alternative rather than the, what I regard as a fairly sterile process of waiting till the other side acts and then saying the opposite of that, which I don't find is a very constructive approach. During the COVID disaster, at the very early stage, I said, and by the way, I mean, you know, as a disaster because it led us all to be having to be indoors and so many people died. And I remember saying at that point that I felt that the government ought to approach the leader of the opposition and try to cooperate, partly because I felt that we would then be able to reach some sort of consensus about how much COVID we're willing to tolerate a discussion that we're not yet had, and which still remains very relevant. So I think that the method of approaching politics isn't very constructive. I'm not super optimistic about changing that nature, if I'm completely honest. It seems to me there's a lot of self-serving echo chamber debate. But I mean, I think I believe, you know, most MPs actually have the right intentions when they go into politics. And alongside that, much of what we read, by the way, is just a sliver of the action. But my my cynicism, I guess, was really revived by Dominic Cummings' recent interviews with Laura Kunzberg, which I suspect you've 
listened to, in which he's very open about his quasi hijacking of Boris's regime. It's my way or the highway if you want me on board, he says. It was actually, I don't know whether if you've seen the film Vice, but it was quite reminiscent of Dick Cheney to George W. Bush in their early conversations about Cheney coming on board as Vice. But in the interview, Kunzberg challenges Cummings' Machiavellian approach, his very blatant misleading of the British public by endorsing someone who he basically thinks is an idiot. But Cummings's view is, look, wake up, that's how politics works. This was the pragmatic solution. And if not me to prevent the shopping trolley smashing between the aisles, then the idiots would run amok on their own. So my question is, how pragmatic was that kind of politics? And frankly, just devious behavior of the worst kind. Yeah, so Dominic Cummings is an unusual person, but one of the ways in which he's unusual, he has a lot of perception. And I do think he should be read carefully and thought about. The things that he says are often very incisive and intelligent. And he has, I think, correctly divined that lots of people don't pay much attention to the ins and outs of politics. He's correct in thinking that our government apparatus is too generalist, that it often is not very well suited to executive tasks. And he's correct in arguing that we spend a lot of time on minor issues. So, for example, his feeling that for the press to cover the relationship between him and the prime minister's wife is a stupid diversion from uh, the great forces of history. That would be his argument. Against which I provide you with exhibit A, the cardboard box that Dominic Cummings ends up taking out of 10 Downing Street, partly due to a row between him and the Prime Minister's girlfriend. He was appearing on Laura Kunzberg's show because he lost power due to precisely the sort of rows that he regards as politically irrelevant, thus in his resignation disproving one of his own theories. It's a bit like people who look at the big movements of financial markets without considering arbitrage. What goes on in politics that may go up and down and maybe you can dismiss it as being noise rather than signal, but it's noise that actually constitutes many people's whole political careers, right? And it's ridiculous of him to suggest that doesn't matter. My second critique is that he's also not a parliamentary Democrat. So he believes that the solution would be to employ technocratic experts to conduct executive tasks because they're immune from the sorts of political forces that he talked about. And I think that's a related error, which is to believe all those political rows are irrelevant and therefore can be completely ignored. And thus that we don't need the whole structure that caused these people to account, partly because he regards it as a tiresome process, and it really isn't. So I listen to him always because I think some of his criticisms are correct. I think he has an interesting way of looking at them. His way of behaving to other people is not mine, although I know that there are people who've worked with him and who, who like him who find him very congenial to work with. But, you know, the record speaks for itself. He, a number of people whom I hold in very high regard, he's been completely impossible to. So I think he's, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast will be doing so because they're interested partly in behavioural science and partly in politics. And if you're interested in behavioural science and you're interested in politics, you can't miss following Dominic Cummings fairly carefully and learning from him as well as learning why he's wrong. And talking of keeping and losing power, do you think Boris uses his power for anything other than just keeping power? Do you think he actually has public interest at heart? Yes, I do. I think Boris has real politics. Let's start with the force of your question. Without any question, Boris is very interested in Boris and how well Boris does. And, you know, I often say to politicians, you can't go to the bank with a promise made to you by Boris, which is a serious fault. And he also has, I think, a lot of trust, partly ego, but it's partly calculation that he has a lot of trust in his own political judgment, which hasn't actually not done him too badly, right? He has a lot of trust in his own political skills. And so all of those things, that picture that people build up about Boris Johnson, all of that is fair. But where I think is less fair is that people think he doesn't have any politics at all. My view is that he does actually have a broad 
towards basically fairly centrist, fairly liberal conservative politics, personally. He doesn't always regard it as convenient to live by that, but that is actually what I think he thinks, in my experience. But yeah, I think it's a reasonable criticism that he's sort of out of the ordinarily sort of personally ambitious and self-absorbed, yeah. Let's talk about then the factors that make a politician and indeed a party successful. Now, we've both read Robert Cialdini's The Psychology of Persuasion. At least I assume you have because you talk, you reference it a number of times. I'm going to make that assumption. And it sounds like it's a book which has influenced your thinking significantly. Because in your book, you talk about the task of the conservatives under the nascent leadership of David Cameron to show rather than tell as a means to change people's opinion. Or you might call this style ahead of a substance. But what's What's the social psychology going on here? What's the Cialdini influence behind this strategy? Okay, so let's start with this. A very big moment intellectually for me was came sitting outside Marks and Spencer's while my wife went to buy a pint of milk. Some milk. And I was reading Robert Cialdini's influence and Nikki went into the shop and, you know, in Marks and Spencer's, you can only go in one door and come out of another. And they were trying to get in the outdoor and they couldn't get in. Then a man came along and he started to sell the big issue and people just walked past this guy and they never bought a copy of the big issue. Until some Somebody came out the door, the man with the big issue kept the door open and somebody walked from the outside in through the outdoor. And the moment that person did that, I thought they'll buy a copy of The Big Issue. And they did because it was reciprocity. Okay. And it was classic, just as Bob had said in the book, where he said that people, it's like click, click, were that he uses that phrase. It was an automatic reaction. It was exactly like that. They probably didn't know what want the magazine. They didn't know why they bought it. They reacted to it. And I then became really, really interested in all of the different ways in which people behave that responds to factors like reciprocity reciprocity or liking or social proof, cognitive dissonance, consistency and commitment, in other words, those things all became really interesting to me. And so my view of politics was fundamentally shaped by that. The point about show not tell came fairly early in that. And it was more that I've begun to realise that people react politically to quite basic instincts, uh, which are to do with their own interests and how they perceive the world and what's in their own interests, rather than necessarily to complex argument. And I think that people require a lot of proof of who someone is, whether they like them, whether they're the same as them, whether they are somebody who can be trusted. I've begun to realise, and it was it was a fairly sort of early version of, of that understanding, that those things were often more important than the arguments that you put. I probably would have put it in a more sort of lengthier and less crisp way later, but I certainly think that was relevant. Is this strategy similar to what you also talk about as communication laddering? That really interested me. You wrote an article about that, which was dated, yeah. I think, 2005. And you referred then to, it was Blair versus Brown. Blair had just won his last Labour election. And you discussed this idea of laddering in the context of different communication styles. I think maybe you could probably make the same comparison now between Boris and Keir Starmer, possibly. It came from a sort of instinct that people like to have it explained, what is the point of this policy to me? Whereas lots of politicians explain it in very vague terms or abstract ideological terms. This was the point I was getting at in that article. So Tony Blair will often talk about having more money in people's pockets so they can take their children on holiday. He would appeal to the emotional content of what you can do yourself. Whereas Gordon Brown would talk about the importance of tax transparency, say, or you know, international institutions 
organizations that deal with tax. It, it was a completely different level of communication, a different point on the communication ladder. I mean, in the context of this conversation, Blair was the behavioral scientist, uh, Brown was the conventional economist, obviously. Blair is really a very subtle behavioral scientist or somebody with an instinctive understanding of behavioral sciences. The example I always give is new labor. So the contrast principle, the idea that we define a lot of things by contrast to what they're not, that is the whole idea behind new labor. And he got that instinctively, Tony Blair. And in terms of just communication styles, and you touched on COVID earlier, and it's interesting because it's very recent. How should a government communicate to its public during a crisis? And I think let's take this current pandemic as a good example, because in a time when particularly when people are anxious and they want certainty when there is none, how do you deal with that? First of all, I think an underappreciated reason why we all obeyed the COVID restrictions was because we were all concerned about ourselves. And a friend of mine always used to have this sentence, he used to say, that's enough talking about me, what about me, right? And I think that's quite a good description of a lot of people's instincts, right? So on the surface of it, it looks to be like a point about, I call it the Mandy Rice Davis principle. He would say that, wouldn't he? People's political statements amazingly aligned with their self-interest. And while people thought if they were on the underground, they might catch COVID and it might be dangerous to them, they didn't go on the underground. Once people had been vaccinated, they thought it wasn't dangerous to them, they would go on the underground and without a mask. So I think that part of the argument can be won by making people understand why whatever's being proposed is in the interests, their interests. But clearly other things come into it. So there's a question of authority, there's a question of liking. So on authority, it's obvious that if you get Chris Whitty to say people should stay at home, that carries more authority than a minister saying it. Another type of person that can say you should stay at home is somebody in the person's peer group. That's also incredibly important. And I wasn't sure we used that. We didn't end up needing to use it because people obeyed the restrictions. But if we'd wanted to, we'd have maybe needed to make more use of that. But a lot of social psychology had an awful lot. So one of the things that I saw at the beginning, which drove me potty, was people constantly posting photographs of people breaking the restrictions. What they wanted to do was to point out that this was terrible. They wanted to isolate this behavior. What they were doing was normalizing it. And everything we know about social psychology suggests that this would lead to more people breaking the rules. After a while, this did die down a bit and people didn't do that so often. The power of the white coat scientist was very notable, as was the repeated use of the definite article as regards the science, which I thought was a curious and very deliberate reference, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely, because you want a degree of ambiguity about it. But there was an interesting thing where social psychology was being cited in defence of the idea that conformity wouldn't persist. And the interesting, I wrote an article about this, actually, there was no evidence that conformity wouldn't persist, or the evidence was at least very mixed. There wasn't a serious body of evidence that suggested that people would get fed up of the restrictions after a period. There wasn't evidence the other way either. So I think quite importantly, one of the things the government thought, the government scientists thought was, we won't necessarily have a vaccine. In the end, we're all going to get this. The number of us that get it at once is crucial, because otherwise, if they all get it too quickly, the NHS will be swamped. So we have to spread this disease over a longer period. And we know from social psychology, and this is where this argument was put in, that people won't do it for very long. So we better not do it right at the beginning. And that little step in the logic was very important, but it had no scientific basis as far as I can see. And I do hope that when we have the inquiry, there'll be some inquiry into how government 
used social psychology. You know, my communication with its leading social psychologists who advised the government was that they didn't advise that. So where people got that idea from would be very interesting to discover. And I think very important. I agree. I, I think it was underplayed. It was probably a, there were some missed opportunities for sure. I mean, there's lots going on there in, in the whole scandal of Cummings going up to Durham because it sort of breaks the social proof. It breaks the sense of solidarity, call it even reciprocity as well. And no wonder after that, that I think people's willingness to play ball diminished. Yeah, although it also coincided with sort of people feeling it might not damage them. Mostly people conformed because they were worried about catching it. But young people, I suppose, did also do it partly out of social solidarity. There were all sorts of things going on. It was, I think that it'll keep social uh, psychologists busy for years, I would think. I mean, by the way, when you talked about, you know, encouraging people to do things for their best interest, it reminded me of the of, of the Remain Brexit argument, of course, which was driven by this, it's in your best interest to vote Remain. That didn't work out in the end. But I don't know whether that's analogous people or... It was in, that's a very interesting thing, because in my view, the vote in Brexit is pretty well understood through that mechanism, right? People voted for the option they thought was in their best interests. And when they listened to other people say, this is in your best interest, they thought, no, mate, it's in your best interests. Right now, I happen to vote Remain. So I think that the argument that Remain was in everyone's, but the vast bulk of people's best interests was strong, right? But that turned out to not win the day, partly because people thought that the remaining was in the interests of kind of educated people living in cities and younger people. And if that wasn't them, they didn't vote for it. Yeah, we, we might come back to that subject. But beyond the communication techniques, which we've just touched on, here's another which I want to talk to you about. How important is humour in winning over the electorate or indeed winning a debate? And you know which type of political jokes work well? This is something I know you've spent time thinking about yeah. and working on. So I think well, you're a I good do, person to ask. You say, It's very interesting. You say that I spent time thinking about it. I have, slightly to my embarrassment, I have become a sort of purveyor of jokes to the gentry, which any comedian would probably be appalled by considering the quality of my humour. But the ability to kind of coin a political joke is something that I've been credited with, even if it's a bit unfair. And I don't really think about them. They come out. The moment I start thinking about them too much, I can't think of even one. They're kind of wisecracks, plays on words, plays on ideas. They are pretty useful and important in the theatre of an occasion, in suggesting the character of the person making the comment, in keeping an audience absorbed with the difficult points you're having to make. Not sure that I've studied it sufficiently to know what the social psychological reasons for that is but it's certainly important and i've never lacked a market let's put it that way who are the good and bad exponents of your or others jokes it's slightly one of the things that's important is that slightly you know kind of if you do something for somebody then you're doing them as a favor and part of the favor is they're their jokes not yours but as it's publicly known anyway i did do quite a lot of work with william Hague on his humor and the thing that was very important is that george osborne wouldn't describe writing speeches for william Hague as like taking free kicks for beckham and that is exactly right. He was so brilliant at it, but he didn't have time to do his own. And it was very flattering not to do all of his own, because sometimes you might work for three days while he was touring the country on the basic script that he was going to use for some big speech. And there were also all sorts of smaller speeches where, you know, he's speaking to the annual conference of orthodontists or whatever, and you have to come up with a 10-point dental plan. And these things have to be done by a staffer. And he is very, very, very good at it. And sometimes other people would stand in for him at Prime Minister's questions, and you would think, well, I'll just give him one of the jokes I'd give to William, and it would be an absolute disaster. 
I can imagine. But as a minor digression, do you think Haig's failure to become prime minister was purely a question of timing? Was it a combination of timing and style, look, aesthetics, well, delivery? I think a number of things. I think he could have become prime minister, but at the time that he ran, it was hopeless, right? The Tories had been in power for 18 years. People were willing to give Labour a chance. And even if they had positioned himself so brilliantly, the Conservative Party had to change, let alone on the extent of the change necessary. And so therefore, we were able to make very little progress in making the Conservative party look or feel different and it was too early anyway for that we were at the kind of bacon sandwich stage right so which i mean by which all ed Miliband did was eat a bloody sandwich right it was nothing there was nothing significant about it at all the rest of it was all narrative imposed upon him right this guy's a geek this guy can't be the leader this guy you know we don't we're not sure we like him all those kind of things were built into the perfectly innocent thing and then the photograph accompanied it right now my we were at that stage right so everything that you did much of which you think to yourself afterwards well it wasn't so stupid that looked titanically stupid how could you possibly make a suggestion or have a policy like that or wear a tie like that or whatever it happens to be wear the baseball cap you know is an example of that so first of all it definitely was timing secondly I think William would definitely agree that neither he and to a lesser extent we because we'd begun to work on this understood the sheer profound nature of the change necessary for the Conservative Party also the Conservative Party had got 165 MPs and we were appealing to the 165 MPs, all of whom held constituencies that we'd already won, even in landslide disasters. So we, we didn't have the right people in Parliament either. It took a long time. But there's lots of ways that democracy is supposed to work and it doesn't. But one of the ways that it does work is by acting as a way of peacefully removing somebody who's been in power for too long. Agree. And we talked previously about sort of style over substance. It seems to me that some politicians can say what they like and it just bounces off them. Trump probably set the bar for that. Boris, while originally lampooning Trump, grew to admire much of his style and has imitated it, I think. Are those two outliers or do you see a trend in politics that we just don't care that much anymore what politicians say, as long as it doesn't affect my personal economy and my sensibilities aren't overly offended? So first of all, I don't think that the parallel between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, I don't really buy it. I think they're, they're very substantially different political figures. But let's let's not get ourselves pulled into that particular argument because some of your listeners may disagree with that a lot. I think that the thing about Donald Trump is he says a lot of things that people actually think. And this kind of not very nice behaviour plus the departure from reality, there's a market for that. I have found it distressing. And I've been working on a book about my grandfather and my grandmother and my mother and father. And my my grandfather was one of the leaders of the Jews in Germany in the 1920s and early 1930s. And he wrote a book, Warning of Pogroms, in 1919, very early on, obviously. And then again, in 1925, gave a big lecture on it. And the core of this was sort of people's ability to persuade themselves of very eccentric conspiracy theories, which in, in Germany's case, revolved around Jews. And it's impossible to watch what's happening in the United States and not be worried that that is the path on which some of the right in America is going. And I do think that's profoundly different from this country. You know, I have misgivings. I'm, I've been, you know, frank with you about my questions over Boris Johnson and those kind of things. But I just think it's very important always to have a sense of proportion. It's just a different thing. Fair enough. I want to talk about political incentive. <laughs> the writer uh, Nassim Taleb, who you may be familiar with, writes about skin in the game in our systems and organisations. So whether, for example, in financial markets or politics, those at the top with decision making or risk taking power, he would argue have very asymmetric risk-return incentives, i.e. they take plenty of ups 
upside, but minimal downside when the risk fails, when the system explodes. And financial markets, you know, those who played a large role in enabling the 2008 financial crash weren't punished. In fact, many were retained to try and solve the mess. Now, politicians can write 350 million on a bus. They can promise oven-ready Brexit deals, or they can act casually about interventions in Afghanistan, for example. And none of these seem very courageous positions. They're driven by self-interest because in the end, none of these people has to live with the real consequences. And as Taleb said analogously, and I misquote, but he says, by all means intervene in Libya, as long as you yourself are happy to relocate there in the aftermath. So do you see truth in this misalignment of interest in politics? Yeah, I do think that's, I think that's a quite a profound point. I think the point about Libya is wrong because I could say to him, by all means, don't intervene with Libya as long as you're prepared to go and live under Colonel Gaddafi. So it doesn't work completely that for me. But yes, I think it's a very profound point, the asymmetry of risk. And one of the dangers is of modern politics is that politicians have begun to understand a little bit more about the nature of what they can get away with. And that's quite dangerous. When you begin to realise that for three years of a parliament, people might not pay any attention whatsoever to anything you do, and that the price attached to it isn't that great, you may act in more and more difficult ways. That's the reason why we have to retain the importance of parliamentary democracy and accountability to parliament, and the press has to retain its focus on issues that may not move elections, but are still important, because if they don't, who does? So you know, one of, I'll just give an example, because everyone will be thinking to themselves about Owen Patterson as we do this interview, because it's happened in the last few days, and you know maybe it'll be recent when, it, when this appears. But so I'm going to give you another example, Maria Miller. Maria Miller, in many ways, quite a good Conservative MP, got herself into an argument with the Daily Telegraph, who led her to have to resign as Culture Secretary. And it was a massive political row. It was on the front page of every newspaper for several days. She made a speech in Parliament. It was the lead item on the news. Ultimately, she resigns. That was also the lead item on the news. And it made absolutely no difference whatsoever to anybody else other than Ian, her husband, you know, people who know her like me, and other MPs at the next general election had disappeared entirely. And when politicians begin to appreciate that quite a lot of these things don't matter at all to their electoral prospects, that might have an impact on accountability. People who previously thought that what they were doing was being followed minutely and were therefore acting carefully in order to avoid consequences of that are beginning to realise they're not being followed minutely, and that's dangerous. But it just means we have to be even more alert. Ed Balls wrote a very poignant piece in the Sunday Times, humbly admitting as much after spending two weeks working in care homes. I don't know whether you saw that. I think it's it's a documentary on BBC, which might be tonight, tonight being the 8th of November, (laughs) depending on when this comes out. But I thought that. I do think that was very interesting, although obviously he didn't understand what it was to be a care worker, although there probably, if I went around the care workers, wouldn't understand what it was to be an MP, which also can be quite a hard job. And, you know, obviously it's like different levels of power and different remuneration. But the truth is that people's experiences of the things that they know about and the things they've experienced and our experience of what other people doing is fairly limited. I would say that the time in my life when I was most aware of things like what it was like to be a care worker or what it was like to be in prison or be a prisoner, the time that I was brought closest to that reality was when I was working in politics directly as a potential elected representative around for parliament. During that period, unlike in the rest of my life, I came up much more closely to people's day-to-day experience. And so most members of 
of Parliament are much more in touch with these things than the average citizen is. But still, there's a gulf between their experience and other people because, naturally speaking, they're being a member of Parliament, not a care worker. And everyone will have their own different version of that. So there's an idea that people who work in politics live in a bubble. And that is true only because we all live in bubbles. And living in bubbles and having limited understanding of other people's experiences is a human condition. And the one that we have to work the hardest, I think, to eliminate. And I would say out of reasons of professional necessity, not because they're superior individuals, politicians probably work hardest at that, study what people think most, go and visit more things. But even then, there's a gap between what they experience, what they know, and what other people experience. Yeah, and I want to be really careful not to overgeneralize and make sort of stereotypes and cliche about, you know, well, politicians are this and that. I suppose my point and my thought is that it's still too easy for those at the top with decision-making power to make too many self-serving decisions without enduring the consequences. That's why we have a political system. I'm not sure that I think that's a correct observation. It's profound. You do see it and you have to guard against it. It's very difficult to eliminate, but it's the reason for the existence of the political system. And I think if you can see that gap, you might introduce all sorts of checks to ensure that that gap is as closed as it possibly can be, but it, you can't close it entirely. Yeah, and you know the checks and balances which democracy allow us have pros and cons as well. In some ways, it allows things to get done. In other times, it creates great blockage as well. But that's that, that's another debate. I want to talk about polarization in debate because there's a sense that political debate is indeed more polarized nowadays. That the middle ground has fallen out. That moderate and balanced argument is rare. And you know, Brexit, COVID, Trump could all be cited as examples. And it seems that all those three things have become identity questions. But I want to try and ask a slightly different question, but just to say, has the middle ground fallen out? Or is it more that those at the extremes are just shouting louder now in a world in which we all have access to the microphone? I've got my own theory about this. Definitely, there are all sorts of things like the rabbit hole theory of social media, which have polarised political debate. But my theory is that economic growth is the most important reason. It basically means that one group of people can't get what they want without taking it from another group of people. If economic growth is zero or if it's low, it increases the amount of friction between groups. If you are not delivering to all sorts of groups in society a strong improvement in their living style, they become dissatisfied with the system and it polarises people. And I think that is the most important reason why we've had polarisation. If you understand most people in politics, brilliant example might be people who think political correctness has gone mad. If you try to investigate who those people are, you'll always find it's people whom the whole political correctness idea has been personally disadvantageous to them or groups like them. So older white males living in seaside constituencies will tend towards UKIP and you can see why political correctness is not in their interest. And if all arguments are a bit like that, then economic growth becomes crucial to understanding why political debate polarises. So Cass Sunstein has written very, very well on why social media polarises people because people get into groups and then they're radicalised by the other members of the group and become more and more difficult to compromise. Those things are also going on. But I think if growth was going faster, political debate would be more congenial. And do you think the media in general adds value to the political debate? Or do you think that it sensationalises it to the public's detriment? I don't think the media is one thing. Some people make worthy contributions to political debate and other people don't. You know, I don't agree with everybody who writes an op-ed column, let's put it that way. So yeah, sometimes I don't think it's very constructive, but that's because I don't share their political outlook. On the whole, you know, I 
think journalists are working all the time to provide information about what's going on. And let's just give an example. I'll go back to the Owen Patterson example. If journalists weren't covering that story, how would anyone know that it was happening? And if they didn't know that it was happening, he would still probably be a member of parliament. So journalism plays a pretty important role in policing the integrity of the system. Do you think, I mean, this may you may refer back to your previous answer, and it's because it's a, it's a function of growth, which is a sort of barometer of the mood of political debate. But do you nevertheless think that political debate has become more unpleasant and aggressive in the last 20 years? Or is that a myopic view? No, it has. There's no question about it. I've got at the moment a correspondent who's not wildly fond of my political activities, mainly my Jewish voluntary activities. This individual might be able to write me the occasional letter, but instead of which he sent me 160 emails. And obviously that is impactful. And I do think that our ability to kind of intrude our opinions into people's lives and make them aware of our disagreement with them has increased and that that is not a very comfortable experience. Now, for me, because I've chosen to make arguments for a living and because I expect or hope that people will listen to my argument, you know, I've always taken the view that you have to take the rough with the smooth that I've asked that for myself. But lots of people are in professions where they haven't done that and they find it oppressive and intimidating. And that leads quite a lot of upset and I think is unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, the internet and social media has definitely given license to cowardice. It provides a protective shield for people to be venomous. So apart from encouraging people to read your book, how do we regain the then a kinder politics where people listen to each other rather than having such well, polarised debate? I mean, I think it would be wildly pompous of me to attempt to do that. But I would say that I think in so far as we can, we should try to recall that no issue has got a hard line edge of, you know, this is right and this is wrong. All of it is about senses of proportion. Whether or not you regard somebody's statement as being something that we should respect as being free speech or ban because it's so hateful that somebody else will be oppressed by it is a matter of judgment in each case. If we all remember that proportion matters a lot, I think we'd probably achieve more. And then the other thing we should do is to try to make sure the economy grows so that we all have more to share and then we'll get lost across with each other. We talked earlier about people paying less attention to the detail of what politicians say than we might think. You wrote about status quo bias recently. In other words, you know, most of us prefer it when little changes, life is more peaceful for it. And if that's so, do you think that big ideas in politics are really necessary and valuable? Or is a quieter, more pedestrian politics better for most people? Yeah, definitely that end of the spectrum. Obviously, you can consider human rights to be a big idea if you want. So I'm obviously not against all big ideas, but I think that by and large, trying to make small changes rather than sweeping ones is better in all sorts of different ways. And I think it'll be resisted less as well. So a maiden speech in the House of Laws, I said that my mother had been in Belson, my father had been in Siberia, and Pinna was nicer. Um, the great ideas of history, they didn't do us too well. And I'm quite suspicious of big sweeping ideas or people with glint in their eye. Fair enough. I have to say, Danny, there are so many other subjects that I'd lo love to talk about, but I'm conscious of time. So let's make a deliberate pause there. And before we close, do some quick fire questions. So are you up for that? Hopefully. Let's see what they are. Yes. Okay, here we go. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? It's absurd to describe this as the kindest thing, but it was a very kind thing, so I'll describe it. As, and I think about it often. When I was 13 years old, my brother got a ticket to the Rolling Stones for 20 pence from somebody in school whose father was the finance director of Earl's Court. And despite the fact that he liked rock music, he thought that I'd like it more, and he gave me the ticket to go. And it was only years later when I reflected on what an extraordinary thing that was. And although there may be much more consequential acts of kindness, I do think that one deserves to be mentioned. No, that sounds pretty altruistic. 
characteristic, especially for a young teenager to do. What's your most powerful memory? I think a very powerful memory was going to see my father receive his honorary PhD at City University. He'd asked me to go with him. I wasn't sure that I really had the time, but I loved my dad so much. So I didn't say anything about that. I said, of course, I'll come dad in the middle of the working day. And I turned up and somebody made a speech about him. And this speech was all about how my father had managed to bring everyone together in his university. And it brought the engineers together with the people in the business school and was loved as a result of that. And I thought, well, that is quite a good aspiration to have and stuck with me. That's lovely. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I've sung backing vocals on stage with Tom Robinson of the Tom Robinson Band. We went on a holiday and it consists of a lot of classes and Tom was taking one of the classes in creative writing and ended up putting together a song which we then, a group of us then had to sing backing vocals on. Wow, that's cool. Which book do you gift most regularly? Probably Robert Cialdini's Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. Sometimes David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. My grandfather used to give people George Mikesh's How to Be an Alien, which I found very interesting. Interesting. Penultimately, what's your desert island music? The Beatles. I'm obsessive about the Beatles. I am in this room, though behind me is a load of books about the Holocaust and the Soviet Union. <laughs> to my right is a load of Paul McCartney's lyrics, the Let It Be box set, the Let It Be book, the Beatles. Great. Did you ever see any of them play live? Oh, McCartney many times. And to my delight, Paul and Ringo play together. Cool. And finally... Winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. I'm not a great person with hobbies. I tend to spend an awful lot of time reading, and it's very difficult to tell the difference between that and working. But when I'm not doing anything like that, apart from just enjoying my family, arguing about politics with my oldest son, which I really enjoy doing, going to Chelsea and watching football, following football. You know, when you said, what's your most powerful memory? I did think about saying when Didier Drogba won the Champions League with the final penalty kick, because that would certainly be up there. Well, my equivalent sadly goes back to 1991 as a Spurs fan and watching them lift the FA Cup. But that's just a reflection of the differing uh, successes of our clubs. Uh, there we go. With that, Daddy, let me just close by thanking you enormously for your time, uh, your insights, your balanced, considered perspectives on what makes politicians tick and some of the biases that are entrenched in today's political discourse. And I think in a Britain which at least feels somewhat divided, your non-partisan voice of reason is a really soothing balm. So thank you enormously. Thank you very much. There ends my conversation with Danny Finkelstein. Danny is brilliant in disentangling conventional wisdoms and our common misconceptions. His descriptions of Boris Johnson's and Dominic Cummings' politics are prime examples. Tell me if you agree. And if you like a load of BS, subscribe at a aloadofbs.substack.com for all my interviews and articles. And of course, you can find all the pods on Apple and Spotify. Next time, I'll be in conversation with psychologist, technologist and businessman Nir Eyal. Nir is the Habits and Distractions Man, having written two award-winning books on what makes habit-forming products and how to overcome the endless distractions in our lives. I hope you agree a load of BS is one distraction worth keeping. Be well, until next time.